0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Payments Hub, Enterprise Fintech Explained. I'm John Paquette, your podcast host. And on today's episode, we're going to look into the topic of supply chain finance. So this is a really hot topic in the market right now. And there are a lot of corporates gravitating towards these sorts of arrangements as part of their working capital management strategies. But it's maybe a topic that could be a little bit confusing to understand, or at least the different ways that these arrangements are typically packaged up and made available to the market. So we're going to keep this discussion very high level today, sort of a supply chain finance uh, 101, you can kind of think of it as. So with that, I'd like to introduce my guest and co-speaker this week, Kate Pohl. Kate, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, John for having me.
0: And I'm very excited to have Ron today because she's an expert on this topic and I have to admit this is uh, one that I've been interested in learning a lot more about myself. So with that, why don't we jump in here and maybe we'll start with just a very general question. Could you you know maybe just take us through what is supply chain finance in a very general sense and maybe walk us through you know the players that are typically involved in these types of
1: arrangements? Okay, I guess in its most holistic form, you have a buyer and you have a supplier. So, and often you have a bank, but we'll get back to that. So in this case, the supplier needs liquidity earlier than they would get it by waiting for the trade terms or waiting for that invoice to really come due and payable. So the ability, either through outside financing or liquidity from the buyer themselves, allows early payment, in other words, acceleration. But of course, not at 100%, but it is a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. So in its very simplest form, that's really what's going on, liquidity earlier at a discount.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So maybe you could take us through too. When did these types of solutions really start to emerge in the market? And um, I guess, is there like a sort of fundamental problem that is being addressed by these types of solutions?
1: Okay, starting with you know when it when it popped up and you know, I was thinking about that, uh, knowing that we were going to be talking today, and I you know I asked some of the experts in the market you know like how long has this been around? And I was trying to think how long I've been doing it. I won't tell you I've been in I was in banking for almost 40 years. I won't mention that having done this business. But the best guess was around 20 plus years we've had something uh, like supply chain finance going on, and probably dynamic discounting. And we'll I know we'll talk about that in a second. For less, which is uh, sort of a permutation on on that. Sorry, and your second question after that was
0: the just sort of fundamental problems that these types of uh, right. solutions do solve.
1: Okay, right? Uh, it's really a matter of liquidity. You know, whether it's 360 degree liquidity or or simply liquidity for the the usually the weaker party, the supplier, but it can also be extended payment terms for the buyer. So either one is possible and there's all kinds of interesting ways to make that happen. But it's it's really keeping that supply chain going.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting that you say, you know, trying to pinpoint exactly when these solutions came out is kind of tough because I was doing the same thing, just don't prepare for this conversation, trying to figure out when these. Types of arrangements started to emerge in the marketplace. And I found people citing going all the way, the way back to the Roman era, you know, that the Roman merchants <laughs> used a form of supply chain financing to kind of finance their activities to grow the empire. And you've you obviously, for years and years, had things like bill of exchange. So it's almost like you have this. Yeah. really classic sort of payment instrument that's, or, you know, a financing instrument that's now been packaged up in a more matter, modern package and being, you know, kind of rolled out to corporates now. You know, talking about I, the emergence I mean, of these solutions, it seems like in the last couple of years, you're hearing so much about them. Do you think, you know, just as a follow-up to my previous question, do you think the pandemic or, you know, the kind of uncertainty a lot of the organizations have been operating in for the last two years has accelerated, do you think, in any way, the adoption of supply chain finance?
1: Okay. I'd like to bring out two points before I get to the pandemic, I'd like to just mention technology. You know, why is it speeded up? Why is it more sophisticated? Why is it, you know, why is everyone talking about it now all of a sudden if it's been around since the Roman Empire? <laughs> um, you know, and of course, we've we've always been trying to leverage trade to produce liquidity in some way. I'm sure that uh, that is true, and there's been different in- instruments, but I'll take you back about 12, 13, 14 years, where when we were doing some of this stuff, and I won't even tell you what bank, but you know, we were doing it on Excel spreadsheets because we didn't have the technology to really do it. And therefore, we were very limited in what we could do when we looked at dynamic discounting. But the pandemic itself has certainly speeded things up, and it's put a real magnifying glass on this whole thing. Speeded it up because, of course, the whole idea of digitalization and the technology piece that's helped there, but also the whole disruption of supply chains and the, and not only the lack of liquidity in certain quarters, but also the very seasonality or the very fact that liquidity was not a steady stream. So that's made a big difference. Yeah,
0: both. I bet it has. Yeah. I mean, liquidity has been top of mind for most organizations during the course of the pandemic. So I'm sure and, they're <laughs> apt to pull whatever lever, lever they can to kind of improve the situation on their side. So.
1: And one more comment, you know, suppliers who perhaps were, and I say this carefully, suppliers tend to be the SMEs, they don't, not always, some of your suppliers are very large and are buyers in their own right, but Mm -hmm. some of your suppliers are small and perhaps less robust. So for them, the pandemic was, to some extent, a disaster in many sectors. So that really propelled this kind of a program significantly, because if you go back, even 10 years, you have suppliers who didn't wanna be part of supply chain finance programs because they thought they would then be considered weak or maybe instable if they did something like that. It was a big problem at the bank to position this kind of a product, even as early or as, as few years ago as 10 years for that reason, that's all gone. That's changed completely.
0: Uh, that's interesting. Yes, we uh, so I mean, you alluded to some of these different types of supply chain finance um, a little bit previously, but maybe we could we could dig into these a little bit more. When you hear the term supply chain finance, you hear a lot of terms associated with that as well. Things like reverse factoring, for example, or dynamic discounting. So are these all just sort of different terms for supply chain financing? Are they different ways you can go about it? Maybe you could take us through that a little bit.
1: Sure. And I will say, as I tell you this, I will also say different institutions, banks, corporates have different names for different things. So that's that's also, you always check this out at the beginning. Are we talking about the same thing? But in the most classic sense, reverse factoring is where it started which meant that you had a corporate buyer who wanted to help their suppliers and was not using their own liquidity for either they didn't have it or this was something they hadn't even thought of, uh, or they didn't have the technical means, if you think of my spreadsheet example, to do so. But the bank did, and the bank was more sophisticated. And what was happening is that the bank was able to purchase receivables from suppliers and actually uh, then pay out the money earlier and the corporate buyer was um, was obviously their risk because in the end of the day they'd be paying for those supplies. So it was a it was a real win for all the parties. So that's reverse factoring. Some banks call it supply chain financing. Okay, dynamic discounting, which is much newer, and and that's what I was thinking maybe max 15 years ago. And some of the biggest companies that that I dealt with started to say, well, wait a minute, I have all this liquidity. Why am I taking the liquidity from the bank? you know, I'm a strong corporate, I can help my suppliers and we'll come back to later. I'm sure why they're doing it, but I can help my suppliers or I can do something with this liquidity and, and really uh, put it to use. And so they said, well, I'll do it, but I need the kind of system that will support me to do it. So there the banks tried to step up or stepped up at that time to provide some sort of a platform um, to allow this. And that's when also you started to see fintechs come into play with their own platforms so those are the, the two main ones are if you will reverse factoring dynamic discounting but it's not stopping there you know very innovative firms uh, all over the world are looking as to how they could liquefy the whole working capital chain
0: Yeah no thanks that's a that's a great explanation and in particular I think it's interesting what you said about these arrangements a lot of the times it's the buyers looking to help the suppliers right so you know reverse factoring um you know if you think about the the classic way that a supplier might access funds from their receivable, they borrow against them, right? The receivables might be the borrowing base in a revolving credit facility and you borrow against those, but it would always be at the supplier's cost of capital. Reverse factoring is, you know, basically you're allowing, you know, suppliers to leverage earlier payments on receivables, but on the buyer's cost, right? You're leveraging the buyer's credit
1: Absolutely, yeah. buyers credit so you get a better price. So you That's get a better exactly, price yeah. on it,
0: particularly if you're a you know a large uh, uh, you know enterprise level buyer and you have and you and you have a supply chain made up of s- smaller suppliers. It is really a way that you can strengthen your whole supply chain um, right. if used effectively. So definitely uh, a an interesting point to bring up there.
1: But I'll put a warning on all this. This One of the big problems with this, when you look at reverse factoring and what banks are doing, which you know some of them are do it very very well, and I work with banks every day on this, but they tend to only onboard something like the top 20%, maybe even 10% of suppliers. Why? Because of KYC, because of the expense. So what happens to the long tail? And you know, we'll get into that, but <laughs> it, it it makes a difference. So you have certain smaller suppliers who aren't really getting the benefit when it's bank financing.
0: right? And of right. course,
1: they're always comparing that to what it would cost to go out and get a revolver.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, it kind of highlights, I think, well, the, the benefit from the supplier's standpoint, but maybe we could talk more from the, the buyer's standpoint, from the buyer's perspective. Yeah, I guess one of the, the benefits of this, it seems like if you did want to see these improvements in working capital, you know, first you have to push out payment terms with all your suppliers and then enroll them in these supply chain financing <laughs> relationships. So I guess how do you kind of yeah. leverage this as a working capital management type tool?
1: Well, one of one of the first things is, you know, we've, you know, you and I have talked a lot about how the treasurer or the CFO could become the hero to the CEO. <laughs> and, and here they could become the hero to the procurement manager because there is no change in trade terms. When you're thinking of, you know, this type of supply chain financing through either reverse factoring dynamic discounting, the terms are as they are, whether they're 20 days, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever it happens to be in whatever geography or You know, or business uh, industry. But here, the supplier says, you know, 60 days, if I have to wait 60 days, I, you know, I'll be dead. So um, here the, the corporate, the corporate buyer can really do something fantastic for the supplier, keep them afloat, protect them, but also Earn money, you know, is that the best thing since sliced bread? I think so. You know, (laughs) there are not too many products that allow everybody to win at the same time.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's true. Yeah, it's a healthy balance sheet, low cost of debt, and uh, and any organization looking to improve. Working capital, this seems like it's a, you know, great instrument to take advantage of for sure for from that perspective. So I think those those two sides of the equation are pretty clear, the corporate side, the buyer side, and the supplier side. So what about the uh, the man in the middle, the banks, you know, or the uh, the <laughs> financer in this instance? What are what are their kind of motivations for getting involved in these relationships?
1: Yeah. Well, think of, you know, their risk-weighted asset questions and risk. I mean, their risk is their buyer. You know, they can take on, they can take on more or they can fill up more of their lines with very short term business. The stuff turns over as we just talked, trade terms are short. They have the risk of the buyer. They can use some of the lines that maybe they weren't using before with really, you know, low risk. So great returns for them. I think it's, you know, it's, it's always going to be a triple win. As we get into the more sophisticated instruments, there are corporate buyers out there, and, and this is really important. Some of them say, well, that's great. Sometimes I'm liquid and sometimes I'm not. So what do I do now? I don't want to go one all one way or all the other way. I don't want to be, I don't want to offer a, and this is important, I don't want to offer this kind of a program to my suppliers using my own liquidity. And then come November, if I'm a October or whatever it is, if I have a, a seasonal issue due to the Christmas season, for example, and say, well, huh? guess what? I can't do it for you now. So this idea of hybrid is what I'm getting at, where banks can actually support their corporate clients by being there when they need them, and also letting them use their own liquidity when they don't need them, so to speak. So mm-hmm. um, banks are facilitating corporate buyers to do things they couldn't do before and earning good money on it.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And I wasn't sure if you'd bring this up, but maybe one of the controversies or the I don't know, the things that always make the news about supply chain finance arrangements are, you know, sometimes banks will enter into these arrangements, then bundle up a lot of these and sell them off to fixed income investors. Oh, as-
1: <laughs> oh you're talking, see, you're talking about things that I would never do. No. <laughs> now, I'm involved in a completely different kind of uh, supply chain finance arrangement working for Traxbay as a platform, yep. but there obviously are risks. Those of us in the industry, it didn't take GreenSill to tell us that we had the, that we had some potential problems out there with fraud and certain risks that we weren't aware of, or we didn't, you know, we weren't pricing, or we weren't understanding. But there are different ways to do this. It's not just direct bank funding. There are certainly platforms that are very um, innovative that take different kinds of funding from different kinds of partners and you know family offices or insurance co- insurance companies. There's all kinds of ways to do it. So. All kinds of liquid entities that want to get into the game. And, and that can be very good for corporates. But um, you really have to look very careful at the fintech, at the platform that you're then talking about. Or It's usually not banks. Banks usually use their own liquidity, although even that they can bundle, they can do it differently. So I think the important thing is to look very, very carefully at what you're doing, why you're doing it. There's no such thing as a free lunch, and that hasn't changed, although this is one of the best products in terms of uh, benefit, I think, for the corporate client that I've ever seen.
0: Right. Yeah. Now it's great advice too. It's it's always good to know who you're doing business with and who you're entering into these types of arrangements with. So and you know, from that extent, maybe we could talk a little bit about how, you know, corporates typically access these types of programs. I think they're offered in a few different ways. FinTechs, obviously, you know, like Traxpay mm-hmm. is is one example there. And then some banks offer these programs directly, right? So I guess you know, is there any difference between either sort of model for, you know, offering these out to corporates or, you know, are there different criteria that would drive somebody to choose one over the other?
1: That's an excellent question. And I think it's at the crux of a lot of things that are changing right now. Um, Technology has allowed platforms to operate. So this is, you know, this isn't yesterday. This is now say 10, 15 years, as we talked about. The fundamental question for a corporate. And, you know, this is the crux of everything is, do you want, well, go back even one step further, I'm going to assume that most of our corporates out there do want to have a good relationship with their bank, their key banks, they want, they would like to see them as their advisors, they'd like to allow this client intimacy to continue, but they also don't want to be locked in. And they also want to be able to be mobile. And they also like multi-bank. So the problem is that although some banks have, have very good platforms, and we call them monobank platforms, obviously, and they're either developed themselves or they use the white label solution, but there's still one bank platform. And once you get integrated into that platform, getting out is really tough. OK, so corporates out there, this is you know one side of it. And what we're seeing, um, and i just quote a study, but it's very much the Dach region, so Germany, Austria, Switzerland, but we've seen this to be the case in Europe, where you see a corporate, or we talked to almost 200 corporate treasurers, and and, uh, it it was a survey done by outside party. But if you had it to do over again in this business, would you choose a bank platform? would you choose a, a fintech platform or would you choose a combination of bank fintech and 76% said either platform or bank platform and actually platform had the higher score so the point is that i think corporates realize that at times if they're held without choices that you know the conditions can change very rapidly banks can also decide not to do the business anymore banks can also decide that the corporate is no longer the risk they like, and all of a sudden the prices change. So all the things that we know, but so one side is monobank, the other side is a is platform. And each of the platforms out there do things differently. Some believe more in the auction system, um, where banks tend to be just liquidity givers. Others are more bank-friendly one-on-one, and that's something that we do at TraxPay. But the platform, in, in general, allows a more multi-bank Uh, bank agnostic approach, which right now is really, really winning ground. Even when the platform the bank offers is technically fine or even good, it's a lock-in that they don't want.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's even a lot of banks out there that would agree to you that they you know, are now partnering with FinTech so they can offer their customers more, you know, multi-bank solutions, recognizing how the market's moving and really what the customers are ultimately looking to do. So, yeah, just from the standpoint, and, and once again, not to speak negatively about the banks, I think they would agree as well. The fintechs tend to be more agile, innovative, you know, so to speak, right? So maybe the experience is a little bit better, or I guess the... Well- amount of arrangements you can kind of enter into um, might be better on a, on a FinTech type platform.
1: I think, I think the point here is John is the corporates are making a choice. Let's just say whether we agree or we don't agree, they're making a choice. They're making a clear choice that they're going towards platforms. Therefore, as a bank and I, and banks are my, banks are my favorite people. I work with them every day, (laughs) you know we what we're trying to do as a platform and as i said every platform has a different philosophy but here what we're saying is let me work with you let me extend your your you know your toolkit your workbench let me give you products and services that you will, that you don't have and never will have you know and still let you maintain that in- intimacy with your clients. So in this case that you can have, if they agree data, you certainly share in profits, You know, there's there's different pieces and that we do some of the connectivity so that they don't have to do that heavy lifting. So it's, I don't think we're here to decide what's better but certainly the corporates have decided. <laughs> And uh, therefore, we're very happy to support that choice. And uh, the best of all worlds is to work very well together with banks so that the corporates can have the most positive, let's say, experience and choice in bank products, and yet still have the technology of the, as you said, very agile uh, and very laser focused on very specific things, fintechs.
0: Very well said. The corporates have decided. So I like that a lot. (laughs) Maybe we could, uh, you know, attempt here to get a little bit technical uh, for for a question, but yeah, I know it looked a little scary, but you know, we've been referring to these as finance arrangements, right? Finance arrangements, supply chain finance, the whole conversation here. But, you know, you know, from an accounting standpoint, this actually isn't considered to be debt, right? These are more booked as like trade payables uh, for the, for the corporate. Is that correct? And I guess, (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of those really fun subjects. Yes, yes. To the great extent now at the reverse factoring and dynamic discounting are certainly, you know, you trade payables. It's under, you know, payables. But um, as we get more inventive, uh, as things get more exciting, there's always questions. And frankly, with reverse factoring, I know that there are countries who are looking at that and saying, hmm, is that really, uh, is that bank debt? Is that, uh, you know, is it payables financing? I, I believe it is a hundred percent because I think it's based on uh, certainly on, on payables. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense, but you know, that's me. Uh, But it is a question that's being asked and uh, answered differently.
0: Yeah, it seems like, I mean, the point that you made earlier, I think is a really good one. There's few things out there in the financial world that offer the kind of win-win-win that a supply chain financing arrangement does. Buyers win, suppliers win, banks win, right? Um, But sort of, you know, if it's misused, or I guess if somebody sort of wants to use it, I don't know, window dress a little bit, so to speak, right? I guess you could technically do that. You know, I think the concern that, you know, we hear a lot or, you know, I've heard mentioned in the market is that a a buyer could technically go out and push their payment terms to 120 days with all their suppliers and then enter into supply chain finance arrangements and say, okay, you know, the banks will still pay you guys in 10 days, but then we'll pay the banks, you know, 110 days later when the bill actually comes due. And then they suddenly have these major improvements in working capital and, you know, without reflecting necessarily, you know, the debt or really disclosing what the relationships are uh, on the financials there's no way to really track down why that occurred right so i think that but i mean that's more bad acting by the players involved than anything that's fundamentally you know wrong with the instruments themselves i suppose right so
1: you know i ooh that's a that's that's like the, the moral judgment of the day i i don't know i think i think that's very actually i think it's pretty cool uh, as as a platform we're just facilitating what people would like to do so we're not in yep. the financing uh, piece of it but you know, I think I think the the key here is yes, that's a bit on the window dressing side, but there truly are buyers who also have difficulties at times in, you know, in finding liquidity and getting the cash, and one way to do it is to elongate their payment terms, if you will, and still make sure that the supplier gets paid on time, if not early. So you can work on both sides. Uh, absolutely. And there are instruments that are either already available or that are coming online. Cards, for example, that also allow the buyer to elongate payment terms and yet still pay the supplier on time or early. And you know, this is for in order to keep our whole system going, I mean, there are going to be corporate clients who have their issues or corporate buyers who have their issues in terms of their liquidity. And this is one way to support them.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so I think the point we're just trying to make there is to keep an eye on the accounting considerations here, more or less, right? They could be yes. changing in the, in, yes. in the future. So as of now, obviously not characterized as debt, but seems like there's, you know, some appetite to bring more transparency around these particular types of instruments within the financial reporting. Um, so it's just definitely that,
1: being looked at in different yeah. countries at different times. So keep your eye on it. I totally agree, John.
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe to kind of wrap up here. So, you know, if you had to give some really just general advice to corporates who are looking to get into these types of solutions, what kind of advice would you would you give or maybe what are your top kind of considerations <laughs> for anyone entering into one of these types of programs?
1: Well, well, first of all, I think, you know, what, why do they do it at all? I mean, the, there's there's a few, there's a if, if I start there, you know, people say, well, who, who aren't in the business? You know, why why do corporate buyers, why do suppliers, why do they even do this? What is it? You know, and the first thing is, you know, we've talked about this now throughout the podcast is just one thing is to support the suppliers and make sure they don't die, you know, <laughs> they don't go under. Yeah, I, I know. But during the pandemic, we saw a lot of issues, you know, so keep them alive, number one. Secondly, and and you might want to talk about this, but supporting green supporting sustainability. Um, the platform aspect actually helps uh, helps do that. it helps really magnify this and also reward so by using this kind of a program and using a platform, you can actually reward suppliers who are considered in your you know in your evaluation through an agency or however you do it as being green. so they can, when they decide to accelerate, their rate is better. And so that's another reason that some do it. And then let's face it, a corporate who has excess liquidity at a bank today, you know, this may all change and no doubt it'll go up and down over time, but you know, negative interest in Europe, that's a bad news deal. So there they can, not only do they earn money, but they earn really, really good money. It's, you know, it's significant. And so they're putting their liquidity to work And last but not least, what we just talked about, you know, some corporate buyers want to extend their own liquidity situation. So this is one way to do it and also look very interesting on the balance sheet. And I, you know, I will comment on that. But yeah, there are different ways to handle it. So these these would be definitely reasons to do it. And that's the kind of discussion I have with buyers as well as with banks who ask, you know, well, how does this work? Why would I do it? What what would be in it for my corporate clients? And they're very interested in supporting those corporate clients in the way they want to be supported. And therefore, we have the same kinds of discussions.
0: Yeah, no, all, all great points and considerations there. So thank you very much. And this kind of brings us to the end of our conversation here today. Kate, I have to thank you again for joining. I thought this was awesome. I know I learned so much about supply chain finance. I'm walking away much more informed about the topic than I was coming into the conversation. I hope the listeners, you know, feel the same way. If there's a lot of interest in this topic, we've, you know, thrown around the idea of maybe doing an advanced supply chain finance <laughs> podcast as well. So we, we could move you
1: on the one-on-one <laughs> topics here and
0: I really get into some heavy stuff. So, which might be a lot of fun. So, and if anybody wants to learn any more about this topic, feel free to, you know, reach out either to myself or probably more likely to Kate, you know, who's I'm sure happy to connect on LinkedIn. Absolutely. And, uh, and once again, Kate, thanks very much. And uh, And I hope everybody has a good day.
1: Thank you so much, John. It was a pleasure.
0: All right.